Hello, I'm Kunal Dutta. In this series, we've been discussing the future of energy, and we've been looking at how the world can meet its energy needs while reducing carbon dioxide emissions. I think the one thing we can all agree is that it's no small task. So where does Shell sit in all this? The Energy Podcast is, of course, brought to you by Shell. So we thought we'd put some of the big questions to one of the company's most senior leaders. Martin Wetzler is Shell's Gas and New Energies Director and sits in the company at a time of huge change. Shell is, for instance, making inroads into power and has just started providing household electricity in the UK. It has acquired a global battery storage company. So that's the future. But what about the company now? I started by talking to Martin about oil and gas and asked if Shell could be seen as part of the problem when it comes to climate change. Here's what he said. Society as a whole has built itself around hydrocarbons and much of our prosperity and current health and wealth comes from it. So that problem is a problem that we share with all our consumers and regulators and governments. The important thing is that we also are part of the solution to this, to make sure that we pivot away from hydrocarbons into a low-carbon energy world. I think what's really brought this into focus, first there was Paris, um, which gave a certain deadline, but more recently the IPCC special report, which has given us 12 years warning of pervasive and catastrophic consequences if this issue isn't dealt with. Are we moving fast enough? Is Shell moving fast enough? Is Shell moving fast enough? It's probably moving as fast as it can at the moment, but it will need to find ways to move even faster. I think at the moment it's hard to find anybody that moves fast enough, uh, and that is a real concern. And it is a complex problem, so it needs governments, regulators, consumers and companies to work in sync. And at the moment I couldn't quite find the space in the world where it is moving fast enough. But I'm hopeful that the solution, it will not look like a linear progress solution, it will actually be exponential. So as things start to click together, it will speed up in a way that we can still meet Paris and do better than Paris. So with new energies, for example, we've started this business a couple of years ago. Why didn't we do it sooner? Why didn't we do it like 10, 15 years ago? Because we've been a far further down the line than we are now, no? 15 years ago, not only was the world not, not totally committed, the solutions were way out of the money. And so solar and wind needed very, very heavy subsidies to participate. And so the world needed to go on a trajectory to bring the cost down. And that's happened in the intervening period. And now we're starting to see the technologies and the manufacturing methods to really make climate change avoidance also affordable. And public consciousness seems to now be extremely acute, doesn't I it? Think, I think there's a lot of momentum, but the thing we need to do is to really seduce the customers to make the move. So a lot of people want to do it. I'm not sure a lot of people want to sacrifice a lot to do it. So we need to make it easy for customers from an affordability perspective and from a convenience perspective to decarbonize their lives. And we're making moves in that area. But as an industry and as a company, we, we are not yet there. It strikes me formidable. Like, I thought people would be absolutely, you know, when you think about what uh, Paris has warned us about, what the IPCC was warning us about, wouldn't it be front of public consciousness to say, you know, yes, you have to make sacrifices. If we want to be in a decarbonized world, we have to actually, you know, dare I say it, stop flying, maybe stop, uh, change our diets, uh, change the way we approach construction, all kinds of things. Do you think consumers are ready to take that on? I, I think it's, it's petty. Uh, and I think one of the key issues there is that people want any solution to be fair. 
So for me as a customer to stop flying when everybody around me continues to do it feels really unfair. There you do need the government to step in and put carbon pricing in or put tax on uh, on kerosene and to take action that affects everybody in the same way. Voluntary action only goes so far. It's, it, is a, it is a small percentage of the population that's willing to make sacrifices if they see no one else doing it around them. The other point is, of course, if I'm an average car driver, at the moment I can't even afford an electrical vehicle. They're still way at the top range of the vehicle cost. You, you can't buy a $10,000 electrical vehicle. They don't exist. Um, so some of the customer offerings really have to still get into the range of customers to get to mass take-up. And we better move soon on that. So partly it isn't there yet, and partly people are willing as long as it's fair and shared. And this is where politicians have a job to do. And they know what to do, they just don't know what to do and get elected again. And we've seen that recently in France, where even a moderate move on fuel taxes has sparked a huge public outcry. So I think we're all learning still how to do this and take people with us. And of course, while government's trying to work out how to grip public's imagination and make them okay with the idea of a carbon tax and perhaps paying a little bit more in Mm. order to live in a carbon-free world in the future, if you sit at the top table of the new energies team, we're often asked, why doesn't Shell just uh, invest more, double, triple, quadruple what it is in, in renewables? Just go for it. Just, you know, assign a whole like 80% of your revenue mm. into this area and make this change happen because we are out of time as far as yes. uh, the policymakers are telling us. Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a really great challenge and, and one that we grapple with uh, every day, every week. I'd say two things about this. Well, one is... One of the biggest things that I need to get right is to create, to build a big new energies business that is commercially successful. Um, if I blow $10 billion on new energies and write them off again, that'll be the last time I've spent any money on it because my shareholders will say, stop it. We also need our dividend. And the energy transition can only really scale up if it is actually commercially investable. And so one of the most important things we need to prove that it is commercial and doing that takes a little bit of learning. We, we cannot just start with a 10 or $20 billion program and assume that we'll get good at it as we go. There will be too much waste. So that's one. And secondly, I do have also to my shareholders an obligation to pay them a dividend because they're, often they are pension funds. They are people that have invested in Shell partly because they want a financial return from it. And so the, actually it is very powerful to have a combination of oil and gas that the society will need for a long time to come in order uh, for the economy to work and for the money to come from that to partly pay the dividend and partly be invested in new energies. Um, So I think that is actually a really good system to have. Yes, we will scale up our investment in new energies, but we first need to understand how to make it commercial, or at least we need to do that at the same time as scaling it up. Have you been encouraged by the falling prices, say, of solar, um, which we've really seen in the last couple of years? It's sort of suddenly it looks like it could be commercially scalable and actually um, repay shareholders. And Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it is. Um, and that's one of the exciting developments. You know, we're saying it is the, the governments need to explain to their people why paying a little bit more money for this is, is, is a good sacrifice. It is our job to make that gap as small as possible. So, so to actually make new energy solutions, low carbon solutions so cheap that there isn't a financial sacrifice anymore and that there isn't a convenience sacrifice anymore. So our work to make chargers faster so people can charge their car in 15 minutes 
our work to scale up our investment in wind and solar to make that source of energy cheaper, our work to start to introduce more batteries and more storage capabilities in there, is all about doing our job in terms of seducing the customers to take up m- more of this. Is there a feeling that we can do it if, if you know, in, in an optimistic scenario that we can do it inside the time frame that Paris has, has given us, this idea of 2050? Yes, there definitely is. And because there are so many levers and some will disappoint um, and some will surprise on the upside. There are levers around, obviously, low carbon electricity, cheap storage, hydrogen. Then there's biofuels. Then there are nature-based solutions, reforestation, uh, wetlands, and so on. If you write down the number of levers we have to achieve it, I'm optimistic that a number of them will really surprise on the upside, even if we get a, a few disappointments on others. Um, so as a society, we, we can do it, but we should, under, be, as a society, be under no illusions that this is major, major change. It's the biggest rewiring of the global economy ever done. And that will change uh, many of the things that we take for granted today. And there'll, of course, be people that will just ask the obvious question, you know, Martin, why don't you just stop with oil and gas altogether? There's your carbon emissions problem solved. So wired is the world. So wired are our food systems, our heating, our mobility is so hardwired to the availability of energy from fossil fuels that we can't. So, So from a system perspective, it will be a disastrous choice to make. From a system perspective, though, the answer is not in producing less oil and gas. The answer is in consuming less oil and gas. If I produce no oil tomorrow, someone else will. If I consume less oil tomorrow, the production can go down uh, accordingly. There's nobody else will take up my consumption. So we need to change the way people use energy. And we need to help them. We have a role to play. So we need to give our customers options to, to use drive electrical vehicles, to drive hydrogen vehicles. And if they still are still driving gasoline or diesel-fueled vehicles, we need to give them options to offset the carbon of those choices. And we are working on that as well. And how soon can this happen? How soon can we actually make this sort of tangible, real, real options rather than forecast? Well, we're making these real options every day. We're installing hydrogen uh, sites around the place in Germany and California. We're installing a lot of electrical chargers on, onto our forecourts. Uh, but we're also installing, we are the biggest installer of electrical charge points in people's homes and offices in Europe. So we are making significant progress. And sometimes the consumer lags behind. I'll give you an interesting example. We have now with industry built 50 hydrogen sites in Germany across the country. Uh, half of them are Shell. And 50 are, feels quite small, though, doesn't it? But there are only 500 hydrogen cars in Germany. That's tiny. So, so do you want to... Uh, and we're building out to 200 sites. Right. Praying uh, that there will be more hydrogen cars to use them, because at the moment we get a customer a week. You know, we're ahead of the curve. And actually the customer isn't yet making the, making the choice that we were expecting them to make. So we're happy to experiment in this way, and we'll get some experiments wrong, and we'll get some of them right. Um, but importantly, is we're doing it, we're rolling it out, and the more customers follow us, the, the quicker we can afford to go. Does it sometimes feel like an impossible task, an impossible challenge? We've talked um, in this podcast series to various people, mm. CCS people, who say, yes, CCS is the future. How many of them are, are there that are working? 25. You know, you just illustrated hydrogen, you know, 50... 50 sites, 200 cars. It's all very, very small and compared to the numbers that we deal with when we talk about oil and gas. Yep. Does it feel like we're just sort of messing around on the margins? No, I, it feels like a huge challenge, but I'm, I am very, very optimistic that society can, can solve it. 
And I'm absolutely convinced that Shell needs to play a leading role in solving it. And we've started to take up that role. I absolutely agree with people saying, you should do more, you can do more. And uh, the only answer I can give is we will do more. And what about um, more generally, do you think the, the, the Shell that you see in 20 to 30 years time, will that still be selling oil and or will it be a renewables company with a bit of natural gas thrown in as well? Yeah, so if I think so if you think about the energy system in 25 years time, oil will still play a significant role in it. There are pockets of oil demand in the world that are very very difficult to displace with anything else. Um flying planes, um even floating ships is not easy to do on anything else. Petrochemicals industries like steel and cement, so there are there are hard to decarbonize sectors in the world that will still need oil and gas in order to get around. And then, of course, in the electricity system, gas will continue to be an important stabilizer of that system with all these intermittent sources around. So I think we will still have a material oil and a material gas business in 25 years' time. But it's my job to make sure that we have an even bigger low-to-no-carbon business alongside it um, because we will be part, we are part of society, and that society will have that mix of energy, and we will supply that mix of energy. And of course, consumers as well need to sacrifice, right? And in the end, they need to sort of change the decisions they make. Will be it paying a bit more in order to offset, or you know, if 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 there is a carbon price, then that will have an effect on their pocket. It, it as well. will definitely impact consumers in in many different ways, in how easy or difficult it is to fly, in how easy or difficult it is to own your own car and how much you pay for something that emits carbon, it will affect consumers in many, many ways. It is our job to soften that uh, impact for consumers as much as possible, because then they will want to buy their energy from us. And finally, do you think that the energy industry has done enough to try and explain the complexities of the challenges ahead? Yeah, the, pro- the problem is, of course, the alarmist message is very easy to construct. The nuanced answer about how the whole system works takes a little bit more time to explain. So we explain that on our website in great detail. Um, but of course, the people that click on those stories typically are pretty uh, well informed anyway. So I think for us to find better ways to succinctly express why this is the right way forward is a continuous challenge. And we continue to look for better ways to do it. And that that's true for Shell. That's true for the whole industry. Companies like Shell will always face the challenge of, oh, you would say that, wouldn't you? Mm. You, know, you, you? You build a new energies business and everyone could say, well, that's just the mood music of the time. Everyone's talking about climate change. So here we are. I mean, how do you respond to that? Is it- well, I, I would say not every company like us is doing this. So, so I, th- I think there are real uh, differences and choices that are being made about committing to new, new energies or not committing to it. And secondly, I would say, I don't think the energy transition will happen without companies of our scale, with our global footprint, our technological capabilities committing to it. So we need to offer hope to the world and and, and, and proof points. And as those proof points come along, uh, I'm sure that some of those doubts will dispel and people will get very excited about what we are capable of pulling off. And of course, you mentioned earlier that investors were um, you know, looking for their dividend and will be looking for their dividend. What's the moment when investors start saying, yes, but I'm looking for carbon emissions reduction evidence too? It's today. Uh, we have a lot of investors that want to see that balance, uh, that want to be financially successful, but also want to dev- invest in sustainable companies. We have denounced uh, that part of uh, our senior remuneration will be tied to green- greenhouse gas progress. 
And a lot of investors liked it. For us... Is that different to how it was like 10, 15 years ago at AGMs? Would this ever have appeared in the... I think even even five years ago, the only people that would have been seriously advocating this would have been NGOs. Nowadays, we get you know, multi, you know, hundreds of billions of investment money backing these kind of causes, and that is important. Also, they believe that we should look for commercial business models in this rather than blow a lot of money on uh, and write it off again. So in that sense, we are aligned. Uh, but no, absolutely. I mean, it is a sign of societal change. I see that change at level of society going only one way, and we want to be on that curve, or if we can, uh, ahead of that curve. Because we're part of society, and we want to be a welcome part of society. And that is a really good inspiration for me to push the limits of my job. Martin Wetzler, thank you very much indeed. The Energy Podcast was produced by Fresh Air Production. And I must remind you that the views you've heard today are those of the people featured and not the Shell Group or its affiliates. I'm Kunal Dutta. Thank you for listening and goodbye for now.